For example, I read an essay called Infection, Media, and Capitalism from Early Modern Plagues to Postmodern Zombies. And the first sentence of the abstract is, this essay examines the shift in fictional representations of plague and viral infection in relation to technological, medical, and economic developments. It was fascinating. It's not helpful for this uh, purpose. So. Hey there, I'm Jordan. And I'm Nick. We're just two regular guys who love talking about film. And now we'd like to talk to you. We decided to break down our discussions into three parts. Because everyone loves a gimmick. We discuss our expectations for a film before we watch it. That's take one. We give our immediate thoughts following the film. That's take two. And finally, we research the film at length to prepare for an informed and in-depth discussion. And that's take three. So if you love film even half as much as we do, join in on the conversation. This is Take Three, a movie podcast. Take three. Did I tell you Zachary's interested in doing it? You did say that, and I still have not fucking reached out to him because I am a dope and a terrible friend. Excuse me, don't don't talk about my friend like that. What? <laughs> also, what's the big rush, though? Like, if you're taking a break because your season's over, yeah. it seems like you have time, right? Yeah, we do So maybe time. be nicer to my friend Jordan, please. I just, I, I feel bad because I am not being nice to my friend Zachary, and I just, I need to be better about that. I don't think... I don't think Zachary's like sitting by the phone waiting to hear from you about it. He's not. (laughs) Okay. I feel better about it then. That's fine. (laughs) Yeah. I would love to have him on. Do you have any idea as to what movie he would pick? Maybe I asked this in take two, but. It could be literally anything. Really? I mentioned it to him and I said that I had joked about him picking Fiddler on the Roof. (laughs) And then he proceeded to give me a 45 minute seminar on that movie. So. We like 45 minutes. It could very well be that. That's good. (laughs) He also, he named a couple of other movies that honestly I didn't recognize the title of. He also did tell me that he's decided that um, when I come see him for Thanksgiving, that we're going to start watching all the Star Wars movies because I've never seen any of them the whole way through. Oh, wow. wow. Good for you for being able to experience them. That's so fun. Yeah, I told him, I know that people have a lot of feelings about which order to watch them in. And I said that I would leave that up to him. And he's like, oh, I already know. He's (laughs) he's got a plan. He knows. Did he tell you? I I think he wants to do them in the order of, like, the timeline, not when they were released. Oh, so just one through. So, like, the plot of the story. Yeah, not too sway your opinion i guess or sort of issue expectations but it sounds like you're going to get the less well received ones out of the way first so that's that's probably a good thing he's saying the prequels suck episodes one (laughs) two and three suck are the prequels the ones that have been released more recently no so those came out in like early 2000s the ones that have come out recently are episodes seven eight and nine hmm how many, like, are, like, the original one? How many there's, of those? It's there's like, there's three. three different sets of trilogies. There's a trilogy that came out, like, in the 80s. There's a trilogy that came out in the early 2000s. That's the one that sucks. And then there's a trilogy that came out, like, recently, and the last one sucks. But other than that, you have, what? That's five great movies. I see. I literally did not know there were nine of them. Oh, boy. Yeah, and if you <laughs> count the spinoffs, there's 11 of them. Eleven. I th- I don't know what the spinoffs are, but I feel like there's got to be a stopping point. I, I, I'll, like, I'm not. I'm, Thanksgiving's only so many 
days. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to have to break it up over several major holidays. As we stated kind of before recording, uh, it was kind of tricky finding research for this movie. There's There's really not a lot out there. And I feel like anything I did research, I found some essays and it really brought up everything that we talked about in take two anyway. Like we, I think we brought up some amazing points in take two, but yeah, this will be, this will be an interesting take three. Yes. And welcome to it because, uh, it's, it's been a little while. Uh, we, we split this up over a couple of weeks and we are back in the swing of things. If you've not listened to part one of this episode you should uh because it's fucking amazing and um (laughs) if you don't recognize the female's voice her name is samantha and uh she is a very dear friend and she is going to help us dissect fido and it's gonna be it's gonna be amazing I'm, i'm totally looking forward to it i am I am there with you, though. When it comes to research, this was a hard one. There's there's just really not a lot out there. It's unfortunate because it's like this is a this is a good movie and people should more people should talk about it. For my research, I tried to see if there was any like an analysis or anything of the film itself. And there wasn't a whole lot. There's really just what sort of read a little bit to me, like press releases, you know, major publications that are just like. Here's a movie that's kind of about this. Go see it. It comes out in March, you know, which isn't helpful. Um, I did find an interview that the actress who plays Helen did. Apparently, she's a big deal and movie people know who she is because she was in The Matrix. (laughs) Yeah, she's Carrie Ann Moss. (laughs) I feel like I've never seen The Matrix. I didn't know that. You should Um, totally watch The Matrix and then listen to episode seven, I think. There's so much philosophy in The Matrix. You would love The Matrix. Okay, well, let's do a watch party. We could do that. Yes, Dude, agreed. That 100%. would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Matrix. It's a date. Let's do it. <laughs> Perfect. So I found an interview she did with, I think it was Elle magazine, which was a little bit light on substance, to be honest. But it was some of it was interesting. She talked a little bit like why she wanted to do the role and that kind of stuff. And then I did, I looked... Because this is my default, I guess. I just started looking at like library databases for like academic work. But then I was like, this is taking me so far into like a rabbit hole of stuff that's not about this movie. Uh, so then I, I reeled myself back a little bit. Uh, and I, instead of researching that, I instead I started looking at things like, um, I mean, I revisited the syllabus of my paper, which I'll come back to. And then I also got really curious about... Um, well, so the film is obviously a social commentary, right? Like, it's pretty obvious. It's obviously satire. Uh, and so I was thinking about, I was just trying to get a better sense maybe of the context for maybe what what his frame of reference was, what the frame of mind was. I think he wrote it with another person. So what the two of them, I suppose, were thinking. Uh, and so then I did this kind of like, not very thorough. It was just sort of very quick, uh, kind of a timeline on like, Things that were happening from like 2000 to like 2006 ish. It came out in Canada in 2006, so it seems like that was a good place to stop. Uh, and most of it's useless trivia that's really not that interesting, although we can get into it if you're curious. But the one thing that really stood out to me was the war on terror. It seems like the film could be pretty clearly understood as a response to the war on terror and kind of the growing 
xenophobia and all the fear-mongering used to justify like greater defense spending. I mean, so in the years following 2001, we see like the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security and the United States withdrawing from disarmament treaties and all of these other sort of like aggressive acts. This is obviously the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. And so it's just this like militarization and like all of this, this incitement of fear and the way that like being skeptical of the sort of expansion of authority by the state and the aggression becomes like off limits. You know, there's this like hyper um, patriotism that happens and then that becomes like this cover for the Patriot Act. <laughs> and then later when we see um, the torture that happens, um, I'm blanking, I'm sorry, on the name of the law that enabled that, but uh, the enhanced interrogation or whatever. I could see this film being a response to some of that in a sense, the kind of othering, other with a capital O, of people and this idea that making people scared justifies like this brutal force and also all this overreaching by the state and that people will let you do that. Yeah. If you keep them safe, people will let you do that. So that struck out as something that was kind of interesting. And sort of, I suppose, that an unconventional approach to the research goes really just like, what happened in 2000? What happened in 2001? What happened in 2003? That was kind of an interesting insight that I found. The article that I found kind of compared it to a response to, like, America's Cold War policy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that also makes sense. Yeah. McCarthyism type. Right, right. Red scary kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think the the word that did come up a lot in my research was the, the xenophobia and just this whole, just like being in the 50s and 60s and just being afraid of things that are different and the fact that there was really not a single black person in this whole movie, I think that was definitely done intentionally. And um, yeah, that's sort of where my research went. But um, as xenophobia is like the fear of foreigners for people who don't and like outsiders, not the fear of like the xenomorph alien. <laughs> or xenon. Or, 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 xenon. or the fear of xenon. You're right. <laughs> Was it the 21st century girl or something? I don't remember the tagline for that yeah, now. You got it. You got it. I love those movies. <laughs> we have some dumbass listeners, so I need to... Um, Hey. I'm just kidding. I love all of you. I'm just kidding. Why would you talk about them that way? That's so rude. Uh, I feel like you owe them an apology. I right? did. I said I'm sorry. I love you all. Gosh. Harsh, I didn't man. promise to be on my best behavior this time. This is probably only funny to like literally just me. But I always think it's so funny. Like in philosophy, the first thing philosophers like always do when they write is to find how they're using certain words, which is like very practical and it's really obvious why you would do that. It's so that everyone knows if you're using a word so they can't just like undermine that definition when they debate you, you know, you're just like, maybe you think I'm using this word differently. A good example of this I think is Beverly Daniel Tatum. She wrote an essay about defining racism. And so she basically starts out and she's like, I'm using the word racism to mean this. Uh, And so if you disagree with me, then like, You have to disagree with the ideas, assuming that this is what the word racism means. We can debate if that's the definition or not, but like for the purposes, this is what I'm debating. For the context. So that everybody's just, yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Um, Which which is very practical, but it's just funny because there's something formulaic about it. Is that like you just start out by like defining your term. (laughs) And then the next thing is that you like whatever concept it is you're trying to describe to people, you break it up into categories of three. There's three types of everything. 
you know, the soul has three parts, according to, I think it's Plato. Kant likes to break things up into three. Everybody's like, there's three kinds of everything all the time, right? And so, so to me, that's like a running joke in philosophy. There's three of everything. I actually think it's Aristotle who breaks the soul up into three, actually. No, I was right. It's Plato. Plato's concept of the soul. Appetitive, spirited, and rational. She has that written down. I love that, that you just have that (laughs) written down, like, just as a reference. I I did major in it, yes. (laughs) Here's the thing. I'm worried that we're going to get off topic, and this uh, episode is going to be six hours long, so I think we should keep focused, and I want Mm -hmm. you to tell me how you feel about Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) I, uh... The close note version is that I think that everyone likes to write him off like he's just We like, don't we don't need cliff notes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're such a bad influence on me, Nick. <laughs> I think that we have a tendency to perceive him as sort of unwitting, especially up until a few years ago. I think this has shifted recently. But I think for a long time we perceived him as like this young guy who accidentally invented a platform that's ruining democracy. Um, but he's like, like, he's a kid, kind of, and he did it on accident. Uh, but I feel like 2016 and on, maybe, it's becoming glaringly obvious that's not the case at all. Uh, he knows what he's doing, and he doesn't care. He's callous about it, and is intentionally making choices that are destabilizing and bad. I do think that sometimes these tech companies do face difficult decisions to which there are no easy answers, Like, for example, how to handle censoring the speech of politicians who have been duly elected um, and but are also like saying really dangerous things. You know, deciding how to handle that is tricky. There aren't very easy answers to that because they are public figures who technically don't need your like private platform. But it does seem like hard to balance giving people access to their elected officials versus everybody else. And then who gets to be the judge of what speech is dangerous? Like, that's just murky territory. And while I certainly think that, like, it could have been handled better often, I am also willing to concede that some of those things are just hard. It's just hard. Some of it's not. Like, for example, it shouldn't have taken, like, the insurrection to decide that maybe Donald Trump doesn't need to be uh, allowed to say whatever he wants all the time. (laughs) Um, You know, I do think maybe there could have been a point leading up to that where we're like, time to cut him off. But, but I do think that some of the stuff they're being asked to handle is just actually hard to do. But also, Mark Zuckerberg does not care. And he's, like, been knowingly undermining democracies around the globe for the better part of a decade now and continues to do it. So I think he's evil and should be in jail. <laughs> Got it. Okay. <laughs> I was just curious. I thought, you know what, we need to answer the... <laughs> The important questions. I'd love to see Elizabeth Warren and Katie Porter, Porter like haul him into a hearing. <laughs> That'd be so good. I'd love that so much. That'd be great. Let's make it happen. I feel like social media is such a new thing. I in the context of like this country. I mean, this is not like gun control. It's not like we've had these things for centuries. So I can understand how it. it yeah, it is difficult. Also, what he's doing with people's data is like so cruel and evil and on purpose. Uh, and it's like kind of too late. Like we, it's hard to walk it back now. He has all of this information. I don't know how we undo it. And he's not sorry. So, <laughs> big. That's gonna be a big thumbs down for me <laughs> on the Zuck. 
this doesn't change my opinion about anything that you just said, but I feel as a movie podcast, I just have to ask this. But have you seen The Social Network? I haven't because I feel like, I mean, I was never that interested in it, but also I feel like everybody says that it was not good. And so I was like, okay, why do you think I should? Um, Not necessarily. I... I feel like I've heard that it doesn't really match what happened in real life that closely. I'm that I'm not sure. I've heard that's that maybe well. something that we should do for the pod. Um, I was just curious. I I really uh, don't enjoy seeing Jesse Eisenberg on screen. Um, so I did see that movie, but I think I was kind of just like distracted the whole time. You're in good company about that. People really don't seem to like him. He just has this air about him. That I think turns a lot of people. You mean arrogance? Yeah. <laughs> He's smug. Yeah. Smug is a great word to use. If it's not his middle name, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one last question about this, and then we probably should talk about something about Ask the me movie. anything you want, Nick. Oh, believe me. <laughs> Just watch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but um, but this is okay. So we talked about like not using Amazon, trying to avoid using Amazon. Uh, Which how oh, avid... can I say something really oh, quick? Okay. Yeah. So before this conversation, I was I was very much an Amazon user, and because of that conversation, I have there are several things that I've needed that I've considered going to Amazon for, and I've bought four things. None of them have been from Amazon. I've gone to like local shops and stuff for them. And I feel really good about it, so I just wanted to say thank you because I am I'm making some positive changes. I'm doing better. Good for you. It's good to feel like you're not contributing to like a vain space billionaire's weird high school dreams. <laughs> I don't think it. I don't think it registered as much before that conversation. It shifted your your perspective on on the the impacts of those choices, those yeah. consumer choices. Yeah, um, which is good it's good to be increasingly conscious of those things so that's not weird that's awesome now he shops at walmart <laughs> no actually i needed uh <laughs> plant pesticides and like uh like uh bug traps and stuff and i got them at like a small nursery that's that's near me instead of having it shipped to my door from amazon so um awesome. it was good and i bought some like new plants so it was great great that is wonderful okay because i know we were talking about like avoiding using Amazon, do you try to avoid using Facebook? I am on Facebook. I don't use it very much, and I don't check it very often. Um, I mean, we are on I, it right now, so I, I like I. Yes, <laughs> yeah. true. Um, I also like help manage like the Facebook page for like my work and um, another nonprofit I volunteer with, um, and so like you have to have an account to do that. Yeah. Um, I have become more conscious of like how i'm using it and like trying not to let it monetize my attention but i will also say that like the facebook algorithm like has got my number my like feed of like videos you know feel like you open a video and then it just starts auto playing them yeah yeah um mine is just like one endless stream of people going out of their way to rescue animals <laughs> or people doing like nice things for strangers <laughs> Or, like, cute babies and their pets. Like, video after video after video. And it just, like, I'm just, like, crying because it's cute all the time. Oh, my Facebook has, like, got me figured out, man. It's, the algorithm knows me, which is upsetting. But <laughs> I check it for utility reasons at this point. But it's also, like, one of the best ways to find out if there's, like, events in the community happening. 
Yeah. Or like people locally who are like giving away stuff because they're moving or selling stuff for cheap Facebook or whatever. Marketplace. Of, oh, yes. Yeah. Or all of the buy nothing groups kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's becoming increasingly hard to avoid completely. I have been conflicted about it, though, and I have regularly debated deleting it um, because I'm so troubled by what it's doing to society. But I also, like, it's, it helps me keep in touch with people. You know, a lot of our, like, teachers from high school, Jordan, uh, keep yeah. in touch there. Yep. I have professors from college. Um, we coordinate, like, getting dinner every six months or so through Facebook a lot of the time. Uh, and I would hate to miss out on a lot of that stuff. And also Instagram um, is a similar thing. It's not as bad for democracy, but it is very bad for people's mental health. Is it a terrible viewpoint to have that, like, me signing off Facebook isn't really going to do anything? Like, it's not going to defeat Mark Zuckerberg, so why the hell do it? Why should I do it? Like, I, I feel like that's kind of, like, the first thing that came to my mind was, like... I don't know if that's a terrible way. I think that maybe isn't, like, completely thinking it through. I feel like there's probably aspects to that that, like... I don't know the answer to this. I mean, I haven't made the decision to delete it either, yeah, you know? Yeah. But I feel like there's maybe like more complications to it than that because everybody just participating because they don't think that them logging off Facebook will do anything. That kind of causal inefficacy means everybody's on Facebook, uh, which can't be the answer yeah. to that, right? Yeah. Um, so I don't know that that's, that's not a terrible position to have. I just think there's probably more to be considered. But there are other reasons. I mean, there's a reason why people are compelled to stay on Facebook. I personally feel like it's unfair that we're put in this position and we have no power over the kinds of malfeasance Facebook is doing and that it's responsible for. I, I just feel like we should have more say in our option because they've made themselves so central Websites like that have made themselves so central to our lives. And you do make real sacrifices if you opt out, right? Like finding out what kind of events are happening in your neighborhood is going to be a lot harder. Yeah. You know, that's a real price to pay. Um, that's community to lose. That's not fair. It also would make it harder to follow a lot of politicians who make a lot of their like public statements and press releases. They post like uh, transcripts of their speeches or videos from C-SPAN. Like they share a lot of that through their social media. It's also how they request information from constituents. Um, I'm largely on Twitter because like a lot of my local representatives share updates that way or like ask questions from residents that way, or they'll post like the link to the live stream for, you know, whatever committees meeting that day, that kind of stuff. That stuff is harder to find. Have you ever tried to navigate a government website to find that kind of stuff? I spend more than an hour just trying to find a freaking like organizational chart for the Baltimore city government. Like it's freaking ridiculous. And I feel like it's the, the state of Maryland's even worse. It was, those websites are not fun or easy to navigate. And that's coming from a person who has C-SPAN as their homepage. Like it's, <laughs> you know, you're, you're asking people to give up a lot yeah. by, by opting out. Um, and so I, I just feel like, and I don't know that this is the answer, but the feeling I have is that it feels unfair to ask people to give up participating in, in those kinds of communities and sacrificing that kind of access to information because some tech billionaires want to destabilize democracy and sell your data for money. Like that just seems like not a fair choice. 
I personally think the better solution, if we lived in a society that was functional and had a Congress that was not so obstructionist, um, would be to have, like, to pass a law that would allow consumers to own their data, um, that would put limitations on the kinds of things that these tech companies can do without our consent, um, and also, like, change the rules around, like, our ability to opt out and the kind of the terms and agreement thing where they just give you a bunch of legal drawing yeah. that no one can read. Um, and then you click a box and apparently are signing away your soul. Like that, not allowed. That's just like not, no more of that. That's crazy. Absolutely no more of that. I have a question because I think a lot of times people use that like they're, they're selling your data. And I don't know what the hell they're talking about. So I figured you're the person to ask. Like when Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> is selling Nick's data – what mm-hmm. about me is, I mean, like, I, is it like my buyer habits and it's definitely that yes, but but it depends. It, it it really depends. I also think that a lot of it is not um, public. Uh, it's it's hard to say because it's private transactions gotcha. between private businesses. But um, have you? It's on Netflix. There's a documentary called The Great Hack. Oh, I've seen Which that. Talks about, I'm not like seen yeah. it, but I've seen it on Netflix, like on the menu. I would watch. I would watch that. Um, as I recall, I think it gets into this quite a bit. Um, but a lot of the scandal following the 2016 election about Facebook was about the data that they were selling to political campaigns, for example, and that included like demographic data. Um, and what I can't remember now, and I'm I'm reluctant to say with being with being so unsure. It's been so long since I've thought about it. But they, one of at least one component of that controversy is that they had pushed this like survey to people um, without explaining to them what it was going to be for, and it was sort of like a personality profile type thing. And I collected all of this information from lots of people, and I think that also somehow gave them lots of data on anyone who was friends with the people who took it, even though those people didn't consent at all and didn't know. And they like mined and scraped all this data from people's profiles and then created these really complex profiles with all of these points of information. And unfortunately, and I, I can't explain why it is this way, but like there are just certain stereotypes isn't the word, but there's just these like people uh, organize themselves kind of neatly into like types almost and so, like, the fact that you shop at, like, Whole Foods or whatever, and you're, like, a white person of a certain age will tend to statistically indicate a lot about your political beliefs, for example. And that becomes potentially dangerous information for political uh, actors to have, for dark money groups and, like, people who are posting this misinformation ads. Potentially these, like, Russian misinformation hacking type groups. Um, okay. I'm oversimplifying that and not explaining it well because I haven't thought about it in a while. Um, let, let me read up on it and we can we can chat about it some more. But that's kind of the gist, basically. Essentially, all kinds of information has been collected about you that says a lot about you. Sometimes your name has been removed from that data. I don't know that that's always the case. But it says enough about you to make it impossible for you to really be, like, anonymous. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, I think you answered that perfectly. I totally get you. I think someone better versed in this would would maybe object, but uh, hopefully people will accept that that's the gist of it. And I think that the spirit of everything I said is correct. Yeah. I If I remember, it's been a few years since I've watched it. If I remember, though, I think that some of it I thought was like they're being a little dramatic because they're trying to make a big statement about this thing i also think that we know more now than we did when that came out and so some of it i 
if I remember correctly, I think some of the stuff in that documentary is like speculating, but I think other stuff has like come out and been confirmed or potentially was worse than we thought it was. So that's just like a little, you know, good to keep in mind when you do watch it, that what we know maybe has shifted since then. But I remember watching it and being like, I think that they're being a little bit dramatic. It's, I think of it as like the CNN style of doing stuff or like, or the History Channel, or the History Channel is always like, drawing 20 minutes of content into 45 minutes and stating everything like it's a big deal. Um, So some of it I remember feeling is a little bit like that, but I I didn't feel like anything was not true. And I read quite a bit about it at the time. So Excellent, excellent. Check it out. Okay, you know what is also a great movie? Fido. You started this, Nick. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I'm reeling us back in. I'm just teasing you. It's okay. There's more. Don't worry. So when I looked at the box office for this movie, I I can't say I was surprised because I've never heard of it and I was not able to find any other research for it. So hearing that it played in 67 theaters and grossed $304,000 domestically and $121,000 internationally, which is a $426,000 worldwide gross, $1,000 worldwide gross on an $8 to $9 million budget. Not spectacular, uh, but I don't, I mean, it didn't get played that much. I mean, 67 theaters, what are you going to expect, you know? Whose fault would that be? Is that the director's fault? Is that the advertisers? Like, typically it's like the studio's fault for not pushing it. Uh, I don't know if they just didn't have faith in it or if it wasn't ever meant to be, but such a big, uh, a, a big release anyway. You know, eight to nine million dollars relatively is not that much to put behind a movie. Um, it did make about $3 million on uh, domestic DVD sales. Oh, wow. So that's that's a way a lot of times smaller movies can make some of their money back, especially if they gain cult followings on the ancillary market. And the ancillary market is like anything that's not coming out in theaters. So streaming, DVDs, Blu-rays. You guys might have a, a better sense of this than I would, but I have this vague sense that there were a lot of zombie movies happening at this time. Like, in the years around this, wasn't there, like, a like a zombie sort of renaissance, maybe isn't the word, but um, it seems like it was a big thing for a while. Was that around the time this movie came out? Okay. There was this list that was made uh, by this website called Stacker, and they, they listed the 60 greatest zombie movies of all time. And they commented that they considered 7,900 films. So wow. almost 8,000 zombie movies to to watch. Someone watched all of those? Good I, But here's the thing. There are constantly low-budget zombie movies being made. I see them all. All the time. And I think that adds to me not caring for the genre but so much or the subgenre but so much. Um, but around in 2000, this was in 2006, 2007 when it came out. I think it was released in Canada in 2006 and the U.S. in 2007 because that kept confusing me because the dates were different. So I looked. In 2004, Shaun of the Dead came out and... That one I think I have seen. That actually did a hell of a lot to bring 
modern audiences into the zombie genre because like George A. Romero is like the zombie guy. He created some of the most memorable, best zombie movies of all time. He influenced this movie a whole lot. But if you watch those movies, they can kind of get stale. Shaun of the Dead was one of the first ones that I don't know if it was one of the first ones that ever did it, but it was one of the first ones to find mainstream success by turning the genre on its head a little bit. That movie is largely a comedy. Uh, I mean, it's still got action beats, but it's not a horror movie. It's satire, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think, yes, if you were experiencing a, uh, like a, a, influx of zombie movies around that time i can almost guarantee that it had something to do with edgar wright's Shaun of the dead that came out in 2004 didn't we just do an edgar wright movie uh Sean, scott pilgrim i almost said sean pilgrim yes that's yeah right, that's right. yeah so this movie is uh it's sort of a rarity uh, i'm not seeing but so many movies do this where it, it literally has an identical uh, tomato meter and audience score. It has a 72% on both of them, which is good. I think that's a, that's a solid score. It's fresh. Uh, people you know, rated it fresh. The critics' consensus, which is the sentence that I always like to read, is making the most of its thin premise, which let's be honest, I mean, if there's a log line that you can, like an elevator pitch that you can say, and it's pretty easy. Guy gets a zombie as a pet in a world where that is real you know that that kind of thing can happen a boy in his zombie exactly um so making the most of its thin premise fido is an occasionally touching satire that proves big laughs and enough blood and guts to please gorehounds so not only is it gonna be appealing to zombie lovers it's gonna be appealing to people that would be interested in seeing something like that spun on its head I certainly, that that part of it appealed to me way more than uh, the zombie bits. You know what I mean? Yes. Perhaps part of the, the lackluster reception or, or the, the, the narrow reception, I guess, that it didn't play in lots of theaters. If, if, and like I said, I'm not sure about this timeline. I have a very vague sense. But if this was released in the middle of like a whole bunch of zombie movies, it seems like they could really get lost in the mix Definitely. So I wonder if that has something to do with it. It also does seem like that it is different from a lot of, I don't know. I have the sense that it's different from a lot of zombie movies. I don't have the experience to say that. I have only seen parts of a few. So I, I would agree there. And I think that even just the movies that were coming out like the same weekend that that movie was, they don't even have to necessarily be zombie movies. Those could have had some effect on it as well. So I, I don't hold it against Fido at all. It's just unfortunate that that's what happened. I don't ever feel like when you've said those things that I've heard it as like a measure of how good the film is. Okay, good. It actually kind of reminds me of some of the conversation you guys had with Kimmy when you talked about Synecdoche, New York. But like people worked really hard on creating this thing. You know, they put a lot of, of their creativity and energy into making this this film. And most of the time, like... People will feel something when they watch it. Yeah. Commercial success doesn't necessarily make something a good movie or a lack thereof doesn't mean it yeah. isn't a good film, right? People create stuff and it makes people feel things and that's art. Absolutely. I it. come from uh, like the mindset where a lot of the movies that I really enjoy 
are sort of the bigger blockbusters and box office is an, uh, what is the word, an objective measure of that film's success because it, they're always going to get hated on by certain commercial people. Success. Yeah, and the fact is, if your $200 million movie doesn't make but so much, you're not going to get another one. So because there are so many movies coming out all the time, that's something that I like often pay attention to and want the movies that I'm excited about to do well so that the filmmakers on them will be able to get more work. Continue to create, yeah. Exactly. Also, having a big budget means you can do cool stuff. Uh, sometimes having a big budget doesn't mean you do it well, right? But like you can, you have more, you have more options, I suppose, when you have a large budget. And there's something to be said for that also. Yeah. I saw a film a few years ago it was really not very good. Um, I think that it was like maybe a film student project or something. I don't remember where I watched it. I think it was maybe available on like a streaming service of some kind. But it was about um, Nellie Bly, who's, um, do you guys know who that is? No. She's a badass journalist. You should Google her. She's very cool. Um, she, I think it was called 10 Days in a Madhouse. But basically, Nellie Bly pretended to be crazy to get committed to an insane asylum, I think in New York, to do like reporting on the conditions there. Oh, wow. um, and so some, and she doesn't have her own movie and that's banana, she should. Um, and so this is the only, or at least at the time, this was a few years ago. Um, but so I was really excited to see a movie about Nellie Blanca, she's a badass. Um, but the movie was like really poor green screen and the acting wasn't <laughs> very convincing at times. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I really appreciated the effort and I also really like I wanted to like it because I really felt like I appreciated that they cared enough to do this because I also think Nellie Bly's awesome. <laughs> um, I I want someone to make a Jeanette Rankin movie, please. Uh, that would be great. Um, but but it was clumsy in execution in some ways that made it hard to be like invested in the storyline, which is not a knock on the filmmakers but I think a reflection of the resources available to them when they made this film, which is what I mean in terms of like the budget being useful in that sense. A lot of times budget can be a negative thing uh, because you don't have to find more creative ways to solve problems. Uh, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. you're right. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's funny because it's sort of like the grass is always greener kind of thing because a lot of times with like these big budget movies, we're always looking for like practical effects because they look more real and they're going to age better. But back when everything was practical, the notion of being able to do these things in computers and be able to create these worlds that, you know, are unimaginable was like the pinnacle of what we wanted to be able to do in Hollywood. So I think it really does depend on the project and the filmmaker allocating that money where it needs to go and where it best services the film. It seems like part of the art. To be clear, yeah. when you say practical effects, that's like any any sort of special effects that weren't generated on a computer. Yeah, yeah. So like uh, a practical effect would have been like... Jurassic Park. The yeah, like define, exactly. define your terms for me, Nick. I was going to say, say R2-D2, but you literally told, just told us you hadn't watched <laughs> Star Wars. Uh, I mean, I've seen parts of it. I'm aware of it, right? I, I live in this culture, okay. but I haven't seen any of the films the whole way through. Gotcha. But my brother has watched a lot of them, so I've seen parts of lots of them. Gotcha, 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 yeah. So If you can think of, like, 
like puppets or animatronics okay. or robots or got um, it okay like, like jobs yeah really anything that's tangible or that was constructed is kind of how i think of practical absolutely effects. and makeup as well makeup's a big one as well okay that's helpful thank you what is so funny is that star wars is actually a perfect example of this the first three star wars movies that came out episodes four five and six a new hope empire strikes back and return of the jedi those three movies have a lot of practical effects in them obviously because there wasn't like cgi wasn't that available however the uh the prequel trilogy episode one two and three they have an inordinate amount of cgi that was cutting edge at the time but didn't age well at all so some of the CGI is so bad and it's crazy because there are certain characters like there's a character named Yoda. I would assume that you know who Yoda is. I know. Who okay, Yoda cool. Is. Okay. I so love Yoda. He's a puppet in the first trilogy and there he's are He's a little cutie and he's the one who talks backwards. Yeah, and yeah. He, and yes, and he <laughs> is CGI in the prequel trilogy. So you will notice that he looks really shitty and then really good. And it's interesting because the really good part is the practical. And you wouldn't think that. You would ah, think that the puppet okay. would be less believable, but it actually is more believable because the CGI just wasn't there yet. So it's a whole big... I love that we... I mean, it's probably... I don't know how long this episode's been already, but we are... Not quite an hour. Yeah, we are nowhere into this. <laughs> this is great. We are talking about Star Wars right now. But yeah. I'm not upset about that at all. Not at all. We're talking about movies, which is... Amen. ...on topic. Honestly, even if we aren't, I'm still okay with it. Amen. And yes, movies are very important. So, (laughs) AOC. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone needs to stop being so mad about her dress. It was was a power move. It was a boss-ass bitch move to show up to the Met Gala (laughs) on wearing a dress that says Tax the Rich. I'm sorry, that was bold, and I love it. Good for her. That was the right audience. Did you not think that that was a little weird that, like, you're, you of all, you're going to the Met Gala? I mean, she's a representative for that state. Like, she was not the only government, like, representative there. She is also walking the walk. Yeah. You know, but, like, this is a fundraising event. She did not pay whatever exorbitant price the tickets are. Like, she's a public face. She's she's a government official for that. Like, I'm not sure if it's her district, but definitely that state. It's appropriate for her to attend a function like that. And she chose to make a statement while attending rather than ignoring the the elephant in the room, which is that this is a room full of obscenely wealthy people. And there's something really messed up about a society in which the only way, like, cultural institutions like that can survive is to beg for money from rich assholes like that at events like that right like that is performative also um and so like what what else would people have wanted her to do to just not attend that would have achieved what exactly yeah people have been talking about it for a whole day and a half now so i'm just saying (laughs) something worked i think people are mad about nothing and she is one of the most articulate transparent and accessible members of Congress. And honestly, she's doing all progressives a favor. Um, people just need to chill. Her response after the the freeze in Texas, when their actual elect- elected rep- representatives all threw their hands up and were like, 
it's not the government's job to take care of you. Uh, and the governor was like, take care of yourselves. I'm not your parent. And then Ted Cruz is like, I'm going to Mexico. I'll see ya. Uh, AOC raised a shit ton of money to help people in Texas. So everybody can shut up about her, <laughs> is my opinion. She's awesome and just chill. I don't have to put this in or whatever, but with that quiz that you sent us where if if America mm. was in six different – I think the, the one that I got when I was reading it, uh, it listed her as one of the people that would also be a member of the party that I got. And I can't even remember what the one I got was called. Oh, but, shit. Um, if it wasn't progressive, I can't imagine. She, I mean her politics are certainly progressive. I mean she is like – she is one of the iconic members of the – Progressive yeah, caucus. Yeah, so I'm sure, um, I, I guess then that one's the one I got then, the progressive. I feel like the only left-leaning options were like that one and like the liberal party. And I feel like, it, I don't know if that's how the quiz was defining that group, but generally when people talk about liberals, they mean more of like the Hillary Clinton, right? So it's sort of the closer to the right-wing yeah. Democrats. The moderate Democrats would be like liberal. Gotcha. Um, like Bloomberg, for example, although practically he's a Republican. Um, I don't understand how he, I mean, uh, yeah. It's, we don't have to worry about it because Elizabeth Warren murdered him on live television. So <laughs> she spared us all having to see the rest of his campaign. <laughs> have you ever seen the clip where Rachel Maddow asks her about that? It's so good. Rachel Maddow asks her, she, she says something about how like people are saying that she single-handedly uh, tanked Bloomberg's campaign and Elizabeth Warren doesn't really react. And then she was like, do you take credit for that? And she was like, sure. Sure. Okay. She was, the point is, he's not going to be president, and he shouldn't be. It was pretty It was pretty badass. It was good. That's I awesome. highly recommend it. It's a really short clip, but it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> She's just so serious about it. She's like, yeah, sure. I'll say sure. The point is, fabulous. That's awesome. Love it. I mean, I did really love that she, like, forced him into releasing all those women from their non-disclosure agreements. She bullied him on the debate stage, and then he came back to the next debate, and he was like, we did that. She wanted us to release them all from their NDAs, and we did that. <laughs> Amazing. All she had to do was yell at him one time. Amazing. <laughs> so good. Oh, I love it. I thought that, I thought that uh, survey was interesting. I think that it, I wouldn't, like, take the results you got too seriously. Um, because, like, some of the questions were vague. I'm suspicious of the fact that, for example, the death penalty was not part of those questions. That's, like, a pretty important, yeah. like, sorting question. Like, that really does divide people. That is significant. Um, and I also thought that, like, a lot of the questions were interpreted interpreted in a way that's ambiguous. Um, and then also I thought it was hard to decipher what the meaningful difference was. Like, the question about would you rather, like, live, like, be a citizen of any other country except the United States... And that was on a scale of, like, strongly disagree to strongly agree. But I'm unclear about, like, practically what the meaningful difference between somewhat disagree, neutral, and somewhat agree are. Yeah. Because, like, essentially you're saying that I probably could, I possibly could be happy being a citizen in any other country. Like, what's the meaningful distinction there? I'm not sure. And what does it say about your politics if you choose a different answer? I retook the quiz, changing only my answer to that one to neutral. And it moved me all the way to the middle of that chart. Oh, wow. It still said I was closest to the progressive party, but it plotted me in the middle. And I'm not sure what that's supposed to say about my politics. Like, yeah. what does that say? To say you would not want to be a citizen of any other country, I think, does have some clear, at least, political correlations. Like, that's a pretty right-wing 
kind of a perspective to take. Yeah. Uh, but like not feeling that way, I'm not sure as as revealing of your politics um, or your ideology or policy preferences. Uh, and so I just thought that was so interesting that I w- I chose neutral and then it plotted me in the middle like that. I also will say on a like a stupid note, this is frivolous, but I was a little bit annoyed because I cannot imagine how you could answer those questions any more progressively than I did. And it still had me like next to the dot for progressive. And I was like, closest to the progressive party? Bitch, I am the progressive party. What are you talking about? <laughs> and I was like, if I didn't like plot evenly with progressive, who did? Nobody. <laughs> I thought the political quiz is interesting because it gives you more identities for thinking about where you fall politically. Yeah, uh, basically, um, I'll put a link in the description because I'm, I'm going to keep all this in. Uh <laughs> <laughs> It's basically a quiz where it envisions like a a United States that has six political parties versus two, or well, I guess like two main political parties. And you answer 20 questions that are, that have flaws, definitely. And then it kind of rates you in a graph of where you would fall and gives you one of those six points. So divided a little bit more specifically than just Republican and Democrat. And we all wound up in the same place. Yeah. The three of us all got the same answer. Because you have Republicans currently, and then you have everybody else. Like, everybody who just can't identify as a Republican because they're increasingly undemocratic and kind of, like, increasingly outright authoritarian and racist. Like, they're just, like, totally fine. Just embracing it more and more. Yeah. Violence and racism, and also we're just going to be fascists. Um, and everyone else is like, nope, thanks. Cannot. <laughs> So we're all Democrats, which is crazy. That's That would not happen in most other countries. It's not a cohesive unit. And then everyone's like, the Democrats are in disarray because they disagree. Yeah, well, of course we disagree. It's like all of the white racists over here and then everybody else. Of course we disagree. That's how it's supposed to work. It's not a bad thing, everybody. Man, so it's I wish crazy. I had the, the thing because I think I even remember it telling you like, this group is about 20-something percent of the electorate. This group is about mm-hmm. 20. And I think I remember... It also broke that, it down demographically a bit. The group that I fell into was like one of the higher ones. So that I guess that makes sense that there's there's a lot of progressives. I don't know. Is that true? Were you like in in the bottom left quadrant? quadrant were you like far to the, to the bottom left? I was like you- poking outside the box, yeah. I was, it was like, let okay. me out of the box. Yeah. Bottom line. Then you had, you had to have been progressive. Yeah. Then. And I, but I just remember. Because none of the other dots were really near that one. So. I just remember like it, when I clicked it and read it and I saw the AOC thing, I think it also said like, this is 20 something percent of the electorate. So there's a lot, apparently a lot of people that would fall into this group. I feel like it's a growing number. It's a, it's hard for me to say. I haven't seen any numbers saying in terms of like, citizens but in terms of like the caucus in congress it's certainly growing and becoming increasingly powerful good deal so i refreshed my memory a little bit uh about the syllabus for this class i thought that would be a little bit interesting too uh so the class was called major themes monster zombies and freaks it was like an abbreviated course that happens over our like mini semester over the winter break period so it was kind of abbreviated um but so we did we watched three films and then read like three excerpts of essays and then some other miscellaneous readings. And then we had a textbook called On Monsters. Oh, cool. An unnatural history of our worst fears. Oh, wow. And it has some pretty interesting 
pretty interesting stuff in it. We didn't read all, but we read chapters of it. Um, but some of them are, some of the titles from the table of contents um, are Monsters Are Nature's Playthings. Do Monsters Have Souls? Oh my goodness. Natural History, Freaks and Nondescripts. <laughs> the Art of Human Vulnerability, Angst and Horror. Uh, so, you know, just, just cool stuff, cool stuff like that. So the way it was set up is it was themes. So monsters, zombies, freaks. And so for monsters, we watched Nightmare on Elm Street. We read Plato's Republic. And then there were assigned readings from our, our On Monsters textbook. For zombies, we watched Fido. We read Descartes' Meditations. The full title of that, which I couldn't remember last time, is Meditations on First Philosophy. We read Meditation 2. Uh, and then we also had a signed reading from the textbook. And then for Freaks, we watched Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> and we read an essay called Throwing Like a Girl, A Phenomenology of Feminine Body Comportment, Motility, and Spatiality by Iris Marion Young. Which, the title's a lot. It's very cool. We don't have to get into it, but there's a lot of jargon in that title. But it's actually a cool essay. Did you really quick? I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, did you did you enjoy Edward Scissorhands? It's not maybe like one of my favorite movies, but yes, like enough to maybe do an episode on it. I there's nothing I don't enjoy enough to talk to you about it. So sure, awesome. Aww. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'll talk to you about literally anything whenever. Sure. Okay. <laughs> also, awesome. like you text me things like. Have you ever heard of Synecdoche, New York? And I'm like, no, but I'll watch it tomorrow and let you know. So, like, <laughs> I feel like whether I enjoyed it or not, it's moot. And you did. And you did. You absolutely did that. So, and I cannot appreciate that enough. I loved it. Yeah. It was good for me, too. Also, make sure to ask Kimmy if she wants to be my friend. <laughs> I'm positive. I think, I think you yes, might have but... just asked her. <laughs> You're Cut that out. Don't do that to me. <laughs> fine <laughs> kimmy's nice she won't think i'm a loser it's fine kimmy you seem cool let's be friends well do you want me to cut it out because she would probably think that that's adorable and totally be your friend she would love that <laughs> i'm fine with it it's okay. okay i'm not actually embarrassed it's fine i'm not embarrassed i uh, i embrace who i am Good. i'm you a should. lot and i'm fine with it uh, of the three which one did mm -hmm. you enjoy the most like the units yeah I think I liked Monsters the best. Um, so that was Nightmare on Elm Street and Plato's Republic. Um, I loved reading Plato's Republic. Uh, your listeners can't see this, but I have a big litograph here of Plato's Republic from my friend Jordan. <laughs> it's just a very interesting essay, and it was really neat to try to tie it into Nightmare on Elm Street, which I'm not sure I had watched before that. Um, so I, I liked it. When we wrote a lot about in that one, we talked a lot about like what a moral is. So I thought maybe that unit was the most engaging for me thematically. I did enjoy some aspects of the zombie unit too, though. I really was surprised, pleasantly surprised by how much I liked Fido. And I, I remember I talked about it for a few weeks. You know, the first thing I did was call my brother about it. Um, and part of it, so for each unit, we did sort of like discussion groups. We did like in a discussion board, we had to answer certain prompts and stuff. And then we also read a paper. And one of the things for zombies we did was we had to answer this discussion post about kind of defining if like the zombies are human or living or if they're people. Uh, and so I, 
I actually found that part a little bit more interesting than my paper itself because the paper was largely focused on Descartes' meditations. But for my discussion board post about kind of categorizing what a zombie is, uh, I took this so seriously. Uh, <laughs> there's like this whole section where I'm trying to break it down. And so basically I'm like, look, zombies can either be human and non-living or non-human and living, but not both and not neither of those things. And so the logic I use to deduce this is that zombies, so I the definition of zombies is A, a being that consumes human flesh, or B, perhaps a being that only consumes living human flesh. Uh, and so like the significant factor for me here is that zombies don't attempt to consume the flesh of other zombies. This is very important for my deduction process from the year of 2015. Uh, and so if you, if you go with the definition A, which is that it's just consuming human flesh, you can conclude that zombie flesh isn't human flesh. Therefore, the zombies are not humans. If you go with B, assuming that the zombies are human, you can conclude that they're not living. Right? Yeah, oh, you're right. Yeah, because yeah. they don't eat. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so, so then I decided that, <laughs> that there are enough, like, physical, physiological distinctions between, like, the living humans, um, depicted in the film at least, and the zombies depicted in the film, that I think it's reasonable to conclude that they are similar but distinct from the human species. Their physiological needs are even radically different, right? Like, apparently they don't have to eat or drink anything. They can just be, you know, they can live without consuming human flesh. They just want to. Or, or perhaps it's a perpetuating a species sort of function because then those people become zombies. Um, so where I landed was that they are non-human living persons. So I decided they're, they're distinct from humans, though they're similar. I decided they had to be living because in addition to the logic that we just went through, we also, I don't know how else you would describe like destroying the zombie's brain to like stop them from attacking you than killing them. Like, I don't know what else what you would call that. Like, they're animated and taking actions, and, and then you destroy their brains, and then they're not. Like, that's killing them. And you can't kill things that are not living. So I decided they're not human, but they're living. And then after watching Fido, right, because the context of this essay and discussion we're posting is that, like, we're just assuming the logic of the Fido world. Um, and there we see zombies expressing emotions and the ability to think and reason there's also a certain amount of will and agency and also there's like the scenes where fido's planning you know he's preparing yeah. he's executing a whole plan um so i decided that also qualified them for personhood which is i guess maybe a legal distinction if i recall there are some countries that have granted personhood to certain animals i think india has granted maybe dolphins personhood they have non-human personhood wow. i might be mistaken Aww. about the country but i think there are at least a few countries where elephants such as dolphins and like elephants have been granted the legal status of personhood uh i think often based on the idea that they have like superior intelligence which is like an iffy ground for that but um what is that achieving? there's precedent exactly like what what is the purpose of, of doing like certain that? not that i not that i don't support it because i love this idea but um, like legally and and Keep like, them I, from I guess being like with the caveat that I'm not a legal scholar, I believe that it gives them authority to grant maybe greater protections to yeah, those animals. That makes like if sense. you consider them 
persons, then they're endowed with rights. And perhaps superior rights than other animals. The logic of that or whether you agree with that ethically is sort of a whole other thing. I have feelings about that distinction, but but in practice, that's just the reality of, of how it is. Um, but I think it might also depend on the particular incidences, which are not fresh enough in my memory for me to speak about with any confidence. Um, but I, but I, I think that is what it is. That would suck for a dolphin that, like, is swimming by India, and then, like, he, like, swims off and goes to another place, <sighs> and they're like, you're not a person here, bitch. And he's like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, that would suck for the dolphin. I mean, that's how a lot of people experience traveling between countries as well. Oh, so. wow. Okay. Yeah, you're right. Sorry. <laughs> just, I'm just saying. I, like, like, stumbled upon a point. Okay. Got it. <laughs> no, it's and it's a significant one, you know, that a lot of... I think what we're watching um, the, with the evacuation of Afghanistan, for yeah. example, there are a lot of people who are about to be considered less than persons... So Absolutely. you're not wrong, Nick. You're not wrong. It's just less funny um, than I thought it was. <laughs> no, but it's significant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you were talking about dolphins when you said it, so <laughs> it's not like they know when they're crossing into. It. I don't know what you call. Are they still borders if it's in the ocean? I don't know. I have no idea. I, I, don't, know, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the jargon is for that. Can you ask one of your brothers, Jordan? I feel like they know. <laughs> Jake would know. Yeah. Aren't they oh, in the navy? Jake is, yeah. Ryan was in the Air Force, but he's out now. So, uh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, well, Jake will know. Yeah, yeah. The, the, when you, like, draw the lines between territorial areas in the ocean, what is it called? I will ask. Although borders are also social constructions, they don't actually exist. On land, in the ocean, it's all fake. We made it up. I remember being surprised when I found out that there wasn't an actual, like, line around Virginia that outlined it. I thought there was maybe, like, a fence... Or something. I mean, I was young, granted, but I remember like genuinely being surprised. Like, I was like, "How do you guys know then?" It's arbitrary, and yeah. it only exists because we all agree to pretend that it does. It's. Nonsense. I know a lot of things that are like that. <laughs> Time is like Time. that. By the way, I was just well, gonna I, say. Some physicists would disagree, but for most of us, time is fake. You taught me that. I know time is a social construct because you told me that, Samantha. So gender is also a social construct. Oh, yes, it is, Mama. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. So so that was my answer to, to the discussion board prompt. So I landed on zombies as non-human living persons. I love that. Thank you for that. That was really, really enjoyable to listen to. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. I, I thought it was sort of funny to reread those notes. You could really see me like thinking through, like, okay, if this is what we're assuming. I love that. Here's our criteria. Yeah, I was being very serious about it. I was so, it was intense. You're doing such a wonderful job. That is very kind of you to say. Killing it. Well, hopefully I'm not boring all of your listeners with my philosophical insights. It's part of why I had abandoned a lot of my research. I was like, nobody sign up for like a two hour seminar in the philosophy of zombies right now we did we yeah. did well, that's I, true. I mean if you clicked this episode knowing that it's 34 hours long uh, <laughs> especially if you listen to part one yeah because at that point you know what you're getting into you knew what and you really only have yourself to blame exactly i feel like i was really upfront with what i had to bring to the table in part one so okay so there are two options here 
Jordan, you can uh, say something. You can totally say something. Or uh, we can find out Sam's opinion on Chief Justice John Roberts. I have an eye roll in response to that and nothing else. <laughs> so done. We can do both. Check. Jordan, your turn. Um, <laughs> I rewatched the movie this afternoon. Really? And, you know, still loved it. And I was trying to look at it with Samantha lenses. What are Samantha lenses? Okay. Again, every time we talk, I just, I feel like I learn so much. And I just, like, whole new worlds are opened. And I feel like you brought up a lot in Take Two that I just had never even considered. So I was like, okay, I'm going to look at everything and see if it just, if it means anything. And part of me wonders if I just wanted things to like, for example, (laughs) I don't, I don't even know if this applies. Uh, and, and I hope that this doesn't come across as like an insult to maybe something that you would have thought about this movie. It's really stupid, but the, one of the first things that comes up in the movie is this instructional video or this like informational video about it's, it's all exposition about how the zombies got here. Uh, it's the news really type thing, right? It's called A Bright New World. And the first thing I thought of was A Brave New World. And for me, I was like trying to find, I never, I feel like I read, actually, I remember I read. You didn't read that book. You got halfway through and you were like, this is weird. And then you gave it to me. I gave it to you to read. Yeah. Whether or not A Brave New World has anything to do with this movie whatsoever, I don't know. Um, but I was like, oh, maybe that's something I could like dig into. And I, I really, I mean, I read the Wikipedia synopsis of a brave new world and it didn't really seem like there were a lot of connections. Um, it seems like kind of two different, uh, ideologies, but I think going through the movie, I just kind of had a lot of notes that were just kind of mishmashed and don't really make sense, but wait, I, I I need help define a brave new world. Can somebody tell me what that is? It's a book by Aldous Huxley. It's sort of in the 1984 genre of books. It's like a dystopian kind of... Would you just... It's been 10 years since I've read it. Uh, would you describe it as like an authoritarian based on the synopsis you read, Jordan? That's that's kind of the vibe that I got. Um, that, that is certainly like the genre of book that it is, certainly. It imagines a sort of terrifying future. Okay. Yeah. So I can... Very, very like brainwashed kind of government like okay so that actually makes a lot of sense like that that's i don't that doesn't seem like bullshit there are further things to reach to that was not that much that's of a true reach. that's true no it's not i agree um but like whether or not that was something that the director was like oh i'm gonna put this in because it's it's like a thing i don't know i don't know but, those parallels um, didn't stick out as obvious to me but i think that that's certainly like there's probably something to explore about that. The book isn't fresh enough in my memory to really know, but yeah, yeah, that doesn't seem either. stupid to me. I don't know why you were so, you were already dismissing your idea. Yeah. Well, okay. So then moving on to yeah, that, gosh, that, Jordan. <laughs> that whole instructional video, it felt very like propaganda. Like this, this, it felt very much like, and I think that was the point. And it kind of led me into this, this, uh, this thought uh, train that was sort of like the setting of this movie and the year of this movie. It came out. What did we say? Two thousand six and then seven. 
Right. They could have had it in any time period, in any decade, and they chose this very specific one. There was obviously a point to that. And it had a lot of, uh, like, war imagery. Uh, it had a lot of mm-hmm. um, this whole military response to this this strange new, again, the uh, uh, xenophobia uh, imagery. It had dropping bombs. Um, it was as if these zombies were, like, communists or not white and straight. It was something to be afraid of. Um, mm-hmm. There was... Other, with a capital O. Right, right. Um they say the word bigger fence or the words bigger fences and more security vans, which is like, like that screams like big brother in 1984 to me. So and also surveillance. Cause he mentioned like taking photos of all the kids in case they get lost. Right. And I'm not really sure what he meant, but it was obvious that was not why he was taking them. Like, <laughs> yeah, that was clearly a cover for something more grim than that, which was dark. Uh, yes. No, for sure, Jordan. <laughs> Definitely. Those are all good points. Uh, I appreciate that. But, like, all of this kind of led me to trying to find some essays and articles. And I'm going to read, like, two paragraphs from an article that I thought was uh, very interesting. Um, this article says, This was, of course, America's Cold War policy, as I was saying before. And like the zombies and undesirables in Fido that must be eradicated for the betterment of society, McCarthyism and red paranoia sought to eliminate their ideological enemies from within. In the 1950s, artists, especially Hollywood filmmakers, were blacklisted. In Fido, undesirable families were exiled into the wilds. Uh, Conform or else is is what this article said. However, these 1950s trappings are merely a smokescreen to satirize the American policies of the mid-2000s. As Curie told Rotten Tomatoes in 2007, uh, this was the quote that you had brought up, Nick, uh, about on a deeper level, Fido is about a whole... I'm sorry. As Curie told Rotten Tomatoes in 2007... On a deeper level, Fido is also about homeland security. Mr. Bottoms comes in at the start. They're building their fences higher. There are security vehicles on every street. We are going to take everyone's pictures just in case one of you gets lost, like you had said. That idea of playing with a corporation that is also the government, ZomCon, and how they push fear as a way of controlling the masses. Xenophobia reigns supreme, and we even see reflections of the immigration debate as zombies are collared and relegated to the tasks that no other characters, all of whom are white, want to do. Um, And that, I think, summarizes the point of the movie beautifully, or at least one of the points that I thought was very poignant. No, I mean, yeah, I feel like I didn't know about that quote. I feel very good about my my little sidetrack into my context timeline. (laughs) I was on to something. That's pretty funny. Uh, Yes, I, I think that's very clearly... A big component of it all, this disaster capitalism component. I also, I double-checked after we did take two, and it was, in fact, Naomi Klein who wrote, who writes about this, not Naomi Wolf, who's the one who writes crazy anti-vax stuff on Twitter. <laughs> um, I couldn't remember with confidence when we did take two, so I just want to be clear. Gotcha, good deal. Naomi Klein. Good deal. She's great. She's smart. She does good work. Awesome, awesome. Uh, but, but yeah, I also thought it was interesting because, like, the context, it being sort of a response to this, the the war on terror and all the, the fear mongering that's happening, it feels also so modern in theme, too, though. Like, it's not that hard to see our society in that, in a lot of those attitudes either. This, the perpetual, like, making people scared. 
Although I don't know, though. As I'm saying that, though, like, a lot of the fear mongering that's happening now, I feel like people, at least rhetorically, are trying to pretend that it's about constraining the state and not giving, not giving the state more power. But in practice, I'm not sure if that is actually true. Like, all of these sorts of, like, extremist people on the right who are, like, perpetually mad that the government wants to do literally anything <laughs> uh, and all of this terror about, like, the, the southern border and blah, 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 blah. I do feel like at least their rhetoric is about like the state having too much power, but they didn't really seem to care about Donald Trump expanding his power. So I don't, now that I've said that, I'm not so sure about modern, but before I started saying that out loud, I felt like it was interestingly, it felt modern, but also it reminded me a lot of sort of, I kept thinking about Stalin, to be honest. There's that part at the beginning, and I actually think it's the end of that like news really type clip. That clip itself reminded me of the kind of newsreels you might see at the beginning, like, when you go to the movie theater, the sort of, like, the allies have attacked, blah, 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 you know, like, that kind of a, it had that yeah. vibe. I can't mm-hmm. do the voice, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, they all had the same voice. But, like, at the end of that clip, there's, like, all of these, maybe they're ZomCon employees, or maybe they're a mix of employees and residents, but they're all, like, standing next to the statue of the guy who invented the domestication collar, this big, like, irony-type statue, and waving. And something about that scene, I was like, is that a statue of Joseph Stalin right now? It just had very, um, it, it, or at least that was what it, 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 it evoked that, for me anyway. And I also thought there were other sorts of, I don't think it's a coincidence that he chose that time period either. I mean, because, like, the zombie wars, I think, are certainly meant to sort of be an alternative history to the World War II era. Yeah. Certainly the clips that show the soldiers are meant to suggest that. That's what it's supposed to evoke for people. Um, And the attitudes that, like, the people in the film have following the war are pretty similar, you know, the kinds of things that we'll justify to ourselves. And also, like, our willingness to just pretend like everything is fine, even though, like, you live in a gated community and everything outside of your little fence is terrifying. Um, but like you have a perfectly manicured lawn, so it's fine. Mm-hmm. Like we, we do that. We did that. We do that. Um, it's eternal. It's, it's evergreen. I think, I think it really, it makes this movie timeless in a way because you can really apply a lot of this to really any decade. And like, yeah, it reminded me a lot of even, I guess, would it be the sixties that people were doing the whole like duck and cover practices about, the uh like the a-bombs and stuff and yeah about then yeah that seems right yeah it just it felt very familiar in that in that sense um i mean i think the 50s would have been included in that to some extent also right because we've had atomic weapons since at least 48 right so or 45 i suppose so i'm sure there was some of that fears but obviously it escalated in the years after right but so like the 50s and 60s i guess Mm -hmm. I also thought it, it evoked other totalitarian aspects also because there was like the propaganda anytime there was like an event and we saw the newspaper and it was like spun. And also there's like the Boy Scouts, the Boy Scouts. It's funny. The first time I watched it, I was like, these look like Boy Scouts. And the second time I watched it, I was like, they look like they belong in the Hitler Youth. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, like Boy Scouts don't live in, I mean, I don't know, but like they like live and breathe about this all the time. They never take those uniforms off. They never talk about anything else. Like, that, that feels like more than Boy Scouts to me. I mean, I didn't know any Boy Scouts, so I don't... Maybe that's just presumption on my part, but it feels brainwashy to me. And they and it's also the fact that it's weaponized. They also are, like, so into their little shotguns. Little weirdos. I think that makes perfect sense. Absolutely. It seems like a lot of directors like to 
evoke this time period and play with it in a way that I think is revealing about our society. You know, it's we, for some reason, can never just get past the sense that like, we'd like to go back to a time when things were simpler and this era in particular somehow idyllic. It fucking was not no. for almost anyone. I feel like white men were doing like the best and yeah. even they were like drinking themselves because like to death because they're miserable. Like it wasn't that great. I mean, they were rich, but they were also like drowning their livers perpetually. So like, was anyone really loving it that much? Right. And this, this is certainly a scale of suffering. I don't want to suggest that like drunk, wealthy, white assholes, like had it as bad as everybody else. <laughs> right. But like, like that was the best you could aspire to was to be wealthy and miserable. Like, awesome uh i don't know that satire period blows i mean the colors were great uh and also you could buy kitchen appliances in like pink <laughs> seafoam green that's cool i guess you know so like but, but we do have this like perpetual nostalgia about that period despite the fact that it has very little relationship with reality uh and so i feel like the way filmmakers like to revisit that period to kind of just reevaluate that over and over and over again and they never seem to run out of things to point out about it that were terrible which <laughs> you'd think at some point we'd get over it but nope 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 it is almost like its own kind of horror in a way because it is like yes. i feel like something that is even scarier than just something that's scary at face value is maybe something that's trying to hide the horror of it all and and just this face of happiness on this otherwise really terrible time is it's like yeah there's some allure to that in an artistic sense or like a, a cinematic sense so i can understand that at some at, in in some ways but also like if you're trying to tell a story that involves repression of any kind like Easy pickings. Yeah. Everybody is repressed to some sense. Like everybody's pretending they don't have any feelings. Everybody is just, or also there's a lot of like duty, right? Women in particular, like they're just like they f carry all these burdens, but they have very little agency and very little respect, um, and they're just pretending with these elaborate facades, which are individual too, right? They have to be dressed in this elaborate way, and like the stereotype is that they have like their heels and their pearls while they're vacuuming their fucking living rooms, which is. <laughs> stupid my personal theory is that a lot of the stereotypes we have about like neurotic women um is really just that this is like smart women who have had all of their opportunities for intellectual engagement and like any kind of uh creative outlets or like constructive productive outlets taken away from them but they have to have something to fill their time with and they have brains that need to be stimulated so they invent all this tedious bullshit to do and they get very invested in these like internal squabbles which i mean we also saw like in um, in like medieval times like the court systems right uh all of the barons and whatever the fuck they also just that's what they did too they all had too much time on their hands and they invented lots of petty rules um so it's not like this is a modern phenomenon but i just feel like if you have all these smart women who have to be idle and they don't get to do anything with their brains then yeah they're gonna invent dumb shit to occupy themselves or else they will go insane it's fine what else do you expect them to do just let let smart women do stuff and then they won't have to obsess about like i don't know keeping up with the joneses bullshit like everybody on the block has a zombie and i don't have one why don't we let helen have a job she's obviously smart let her do something yeah <laughs> you know like that it makes people neurotic and anxious yeah. to have nothing to do right like it's not good for you which is to say we have to be busy all the time right but like if you have no 
nothing productive to do at all. Like, that makes people neurotic. It's not good. That's, that's an aside. That's just my own personal hypothesis about the way we talk about women from that time period. Like, they're all, like, you know, spun up so tight. Well, of course they are. They were bored as hell. Yeah, duh. <laughs> no. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. You're right, Jordan. None of those things are an accident, right? Like, I feel like listening to your podcast has changed the way I think about movies. Like, if, I, if I'm just watching them just because I don't always think about it a lot. But if I finish a movie and I'm like, I'm not sure I like that, then I start being like, well, <laughs> why though? Uh, and then I... Uh, that often turns into asking, like, well, why did they decide to do that thing? Why did they do this? Why this and not literally anything else? And usually that's where all the interesting stuff is. you know, Because mm-hmm. it is all, most of it is intentional. Sometimes it's maybe just, like, a limitation, perhaps. Like, sometimes it's, like, solving a problem that's, like, set in a certain place or someone's wearing whatever outfit. You know, sometimes it isn't significant, but... A lot of the times it is. It's not an accident that it's all set in this time period, especially because, like, I feel like the way the color is used and also the juxtaposition are very much elements of the film. Yeah. Like, that's as much a character in the movie as the people are. Mm-hmm. It's so saturated, yeah. this movie. The colors are so vibrant. I mean, in contrast to the zombies who are all gray and the outside, who's, it's, like, all dirty and gross. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Oh, did you notice that um, – this is just a funny note. This is apropos of nothing. Just before Helen tells Bill that she's pregnant, I think that's when it was, but he's sitting in bed and he's reading a magazine. Do either of you notice the magazine? So this is funny because I didn't pick this up because I did some research after watching it the second time, and I did I, – I saw what you're about to say – uh, and I was like, oh, I'm not going to watch this whole movie again just to catch it. But I, I yeah, you should say it because it's, it's funny. He's reading Death Magazine, but like it's written like Life Magazine. It's the same font and everything. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the attention to detail. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, yeah, That's for sure. That's awesome. I thought that was very clever. And like it was subtle. They didn't draw any attention to it, but it was just there. It's really just driving home the point. We love things in case, like in that. Case, in case you missed it, he's obsessed with death. Yeah. <laughs> they, they all are. Apparently it's cultural because they didn't write the magazine for one person. It's true. It's very true. To your point about the post-war era, like this is sort of like an alternate version of post-World War II, right? I thought, and I didn't think about this the first time or the second time I watched it actually, but I wonder if it wouldn't be an interesting lens for watching the film to consider the effects that the zombie wars had on the dads, right? Like, it's pretty clear the two prominent dads in the film, both of which experienced the zombie wars in some capacity, have been traumatized by it, and they are fucked up now, right? Like, neither of them want to have any relationships with their families. Uh, One of them has, like, a skull in a jar in his office. Like a weirdo. Uh, And the other one, he, like, cannot talk about any of his feelings. And the only time he tries to tell his son he loves him, he does it by buying him a handgun and telling him that feelings don't matter. Being alive is what matters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like in the last pod- podcast I talked a lot about, I mean, I went on a tangent, I suppose, about the psychology of how people can be manipulated into doing bad stuff on a large scale, not unlike the Nazi regime. And when I said that, I was talking about how like politicians are actively trying to convince people that the vaccines aren't a good idea even though that's crazy and demonstrably not true at this point but i feel like i kept coming back to that when i was thinking about this earlier this idea of like that this is a reflection on this post-war era 
Um, and the kinds of cruelties that people will just be like blind to for the sake of their own security and comfort and not like in a way that like it actively benefits them. Although obviously having like a slave in your home certainly would benefit you, but also even the people who don't have them are just like, this is fine. They're not people. They're not part of us. This is okay. And Zomcon says it's okay. And they're keeping us safe, right? Like that. It's easy for us to justify stuff like that to ourselves, especially once we decide someone or something is other, and then all of a sudden anything goes. It's it's both amazing and terrifying how powerful tradition is. Um, I think it plays a lot. It, it's it's hand in hand with. Um, I think I brought this up in take two as well about how people are so afraid of admitting that they're wrong it's something that we've been doing this for years and years and years why change it uh not really realizing that the system is broken and just this grasp that a lot of people have on just tradition alone just because we've been doing it for so long i'm afraid of anything else i don't want to change is is terrifying i also thought about that in terms of like sort of similar to that this idea of my only note that I wrote is America as an aesthetic. Uh, I feel like when people talk about like real America or like the, the demographic of people that get considered real Americans in our political discourse right now, I feel like if you were to ask them, a lot of them would like picture this era in terms of like what is like quintessential America. It'd be like 1950s suburbia, white suburbia. Yes. Um, <laughs> and I feel like it's interesting because this movie especially on a casual viewing, is identifiable as, like, Americana. Um, there's no question that this is, like, 1950s United States. And I think that it's familiar to people. People are like, yes, this is America. But, like, they don't have a government. They have ZomCon. Um, their tax dollars fund a corporation. I was going to say, unlike our current system, but that's not exactly true. Uh, but it is, it is an exaggeration of our current system anyway. It's certainly more overt. But, like... It, it's easy to see people still identifying like even that world as like America. I, I just, there's something about this idea of like this concept being really more aesthetic than about really any ideology or like beliefs or like dedication to democracy that it is sort of a superficial, idyllic kind of a facade more than anything else. And that like when people talk about like make America great again, they're talking about that time period. Yep. And it doesn't have anything to do with really anything substantive except white supremacy. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of like substance, right? Like it's not, it is an aesthetic identity almost. I wouldn't say which almost. I don't think it's the I, point. I commit to that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, yeah, people who feel that strongly about it, right? I think other people have concepts of America that are more substantive. Yes. Um, <laughs> Oh, and also the other the other thing that I thought was very like it reminded me of a very Stalin type regime was this um the idea that you can just get thrown into the wild zone for any transgression and not just you but your, your whole, whole family. family. Yep. Totalitarian regimes love to do that. That is like dictator handbook one on one shit. <laughs> I wrote a paper in college um, that was actually I just thought it would be very funny. The final paper was about authoritarian governments, it's about like revolutions, uh, and I thought it would be funny to write the paper like a handbook on how to be an authoritarian because <laughs> it is essentially what I was being tasked with, right? Which is like describing the kinds of trends and behaviors that are common 
of the tactics that are common among dictators. Yeah. So I decided it would be hilarious. <laughs> I was very sleep deprived at the time. I was like, it'd be very funny to just like embrace it and be like, you want to be a dictator? Here's how you do it. Roll one. Was it, was it like six? Did you get a good grade on it? Did they? Yeah, I did fine. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, not that I had any doubts, but I just wasn't sure if like the professor I mean, agreed. the patterns are pretty easily identified. I mean, I feel like the Falkland Islands is an interesting example. Like, you just you just never do anything about your domestic problems, but you just you find like an outgroup and other a capital O other to blame and raise a lot of mess about, and or you like have an unsolvable issue that you just get everybody all worked up about. And Argentina does this with the Falkland Islands, or at least they did. I'm I have not checked the headlines about the status of the Falkland Islands in some time, but it's like a British territory off the coast of Argentina, I believe, and. There is like a long, a long standing controversy over if like those, that territory should be returned to the Argentines or not. Uh, even though I think that they did a survey of it's very sparsely populated or it was anyway. And I think they all identified as like British subjects and like would choose to be British at this point, like culturally, I suppose. But whenever like the, the less than democratic leader of that country can't solve problems and people are mad at him for stuff. Uh, he's just like, but the Falkland Islands! And he makes a big stink about it to, like, distract people and then everybody's all mad about the Falkland Islands and it's, like, a thing. Oh, wow. And, like, those kinds of problems are very useful. You know? The border wall functions the same way in the United States. You can perpetually terrify people about the border wall even though that's not how most immigrants get into this country, including those who are not here um, with the legal documentation, most people come to this country legally and then overstay their visas. That's how that happens. Getting across the borders is actually pretty hard. <laughs> and also, that's not how most drugs get into this country. And even drugs that do get into the country through the borders are not happening because people are just driving across them. Um, like, they have built, like, really elaborate, like, transport systems and tunnels and all kinds of shit. Like, it's... A wall isn't going to solve that problem. Like... Even if that is a problem on a scale that, like, we need to be panicked about, um, it's not happening because we don't have a wall. That's not <laughs> fucking how anything works. Uh, but, but so we have our own perennial issues. And so, like, that's dictatorship 101 for sure. And also, I'm the only one who can fix it is, is uh, yeah. the other thing. Yeah, that seemed to be, like, that whole look over there kind of mentality about, like, like distraction from the real problems. That makes perfect sense. So I kind of feel weird, like, jumping back in now. <laughs> do it. Just do it. Okay, so this, this film was directed by a guy named Andrew Curry, and he was, he's in a, he was, he still is, he's still living, uh, a Canadian filmmaker. And uh, this was his first feature with, like, a decent budget. I'll talk about his first feature in a second, but this was the one where he actually got a decent budget, eight to nine million, like I said. He did say that he was heavily inspired by the mythology of the George A. Romero zombie films. And if you are curious as to what that is, there are so many movies that you could watch. He's definitely directly influenced zombies throughout. Uh, he's passed away now, but um, he made a lot of the most iconic zombie movies to have ever been made. But uh, I looked into... Andrew Curry's some of his filmography and I want to talk to you guys about them and see if you were interested in checking any of them out because they actually kind of seemed interesting. Yes. 
Perfect. The answer is already yes. <laughs> Have you met me? No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. I was like, okay, well then we can we can skip this. That's totally fine. Uh, no. Um, so his actual first feature is called Mile Zero, and it came out in 2001. And it's about a divorced father who abducts his son and sets off for the mountains. And it got nominated for like a, a slew of small festival awards in Canada. It sounds pretty good. I really was only able to find like this really low resolution trailer on YouTube. Uh, but it, from I would assume that it was shot better than that. And uh, it looked pretty good. I was, I was like, oh, this is interesting. After this film... Uh, in 2012, he released a PG-13 thriller called Barricade, and it's about uh, a widowed psychiatrist that takes his two kids to a cabin in the mountains for like a white Christmas, uh, and of course some scary shit happens. I was like, oh, that sounds like something I would really enjoy. It's a lot of dads taking their children to remote locations. <laughs> yeah. That is very interesting. I mean, I said a lot. It's just two movies. It just does seem like those are those plots aren't that far apart. Exactly. It's not that it's not that far of a stretch. Did Andrew Curry have a childhood trauma? <laughs> Barricade. The, like the plot of that also kind of reminded me of this movie I recently watched called The Lodge. The Lodge. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought I of like, too. Yeah. Oh wow! I really hope that this is not like The Lodge. I mean, The Lodge is a fantastic movie, but I don't want to watch The Lodge again. Don't watch The Lodge, Samantha. You will not enjoy it. I do not think you will enjoy it. How do you know? It's just not. It's just not a. <laughs> you wouldn't have guessed I'd pick this movie, so. Okay. Okay. By all means, go I'm watch just The kidding. Lodge. I'm just kidding. <laughs> By all means, I'm unknowable, Nick. No. Why? No. Why don't you think I would like it? Uh, because I am virtually undisturbable when it comes to horror movies. It was scary. And it yeah. wrecked me. It's, it's not even just scary. It's disturbing. Was it worse than Invisible Man? Oh, yeah. Ooh. Okay, no, thank you. I don't want to watch it. Also, Jordan, I want you to know that I'm low-key mad at you for not warning me about that fucking scene in the restaurant. Oh, my God. That was so upsetting. <laughs> oh, my God. One of the I feel like if you were my friend, you'd have warned me about <laughs> that. That. Was, that is really good. That is one. I, I was not emotionally prepared. I did not know that you had watched that movie. I oh my god, that was like traumatized forever. Yeah, what a great moment in cinema. I thought it was. Ugh, what a great shock moment. Like, great is one word for it, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, cinematically, yes, it was great. But like in reality, of course, it's disturbing. And I can say that about the lodge too. The lodge is a. It very, happened so fast. Yeah, yeah. It went from zero to one hundred and ten. Yep. <laughs> yep. Oof. Okay, so if the lodge is worse than that, then I'm going to pass. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's much worse. I like to sleep on occasion. This feels more in line, I guess, with Fido, but um, just because it's more of a comedy. In 2015, he directed an R-rated comedy called The Steps, and uh, this I just literally copied this uh, synopsis. It says, an uptight New Yorker and his party girl sister visit their dad's lake house to meet his new wife and rough around the edges kids. When the parents announce they're adopting a child to bring the family together, it has the opposite effect. I've seen the trailer. It actually was kind of funny, um, but there's it's just a bunch of like adults that are suddenly now stepbrother and sisters, and <laughs> it's pretty cool. But James Brolin and Jason Ritter are both in this, uh, so I'm, I am definitely going to check that out for sure. 
When you said Lake House, I was like, oh, no. But then I remembered you said it was a comedy. So I was like, okay, just kidding. Probably <laughs> yeah, no one it's dies. It's a dad that takes his two kids to a lake house. <laughs> to, yeah. to a remote location. <laughs> okay, last one. Uh, he's apparently in pre-production on a film called The Invisibles, Ooh. which is very interesting that you brought that out just a second ago, starring Lucy Liu and Tim Blake Nelson. Who wow. is in this movie? Is in Fido. Tim Blake Nelson is Mr. Theopolis. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I'm bad at actors' names. Thank you. Oh, he's a. I think he's in lots of stuff. Yes, he is a character actor. I mean, he's in a whole lot of stuff. The first thing I will always associate him with is holes. Yes. Oh yeah. I feel like he's one of those actors, and I feel like I feel like sometimes people act like those actors aren't as good as other actors because like. They're maybe don't have the name recognition, but like he's the kind of actor that can be in stuff and you don't even know it's him because he can just like he is a chameleon yeah. in this way and he just like gets so into whatever he's doing that he almost becomes like invisible in that sense. Yeah. Which I think is so fucking impressive. Like it's a lot more impressive than like I don't know, there are certain actors who just like basically play themselves in everything they're in. Absolutely. Which which can be fine and good and impressive. And those guys wind up being the movie stars, but they're the ones with no range. Yeah. I I'm I can't think of any names for an example for that, but you both are nodding, so uh, you know what I Tom Cruise, sure. Will Smith. <laughs> yes, Will Smith does definitely do that. That's yeah. true. Yeah. Now you're... that you're saying that, yes. Yeah. And then you have guys like him who like I did not know what his name was, and I did not realize he was in holes. But now that you He was also in Kimmy Schmidt, wasn't he? He, he was. was. Yeah. And yes, he was. And but also, like, was he in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Was he one of the yeah. three? Oh my god, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, see, that's fucking impressive to me. I think that's really awesome. I didn't even put all that together until now. That's awesome. <laughs> is that what it means when people use the term character actor? Is that sort of what they're referring to? Yeah, a lot of times, uh, like working actor, which basically means you know they're they're not necessarily like the star of the film, but they're in a lot of roles, and and a lot of times they can, uh, like you said, like disappear into a role. They're not necessarily the name that brings you in, but this isn't exactly the same thing. But uh, Judy Greer, who. I, I don't know if you got, like, you both know who. I can picture her. I can't think of what she's been in, but I can see her face. So she has a book that's called I Don't Know Where You Know Me From or something (laughs) like that. And it's basically, she's like like a career of being like the best friend or, you know what I mean? Because she's always like a side character. She has a distinct voice. I can like hear her voice in my mind. Exactly. Like when I picture her. Exactly. Exactly. But like you, you do that long enough and you, you, get a good enough reputation you get lucky and you get bigger and better work i know tim blake nelson he's one of my absolute favorite characters in the watchmen series he's fantastic in that didn't even realize he was in that yeah well it's funny because guess what his face is completely covered he plays a character called looking glass and his face is like uh like a mirror oh wow it's awesome. But he's also going to be in uh, Nightmare Alley, which is Guillermo del Toro's new movie, which I think a trailer might have just come out for that. Really? Who is that? Guillermo Who del Toro? Yeah. Okay, so he's a he's a famous director. He directed a movie called The Shape of Water, which is actually the first episode we ever did. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. One last time for the last episode of the season. Goodness. 
<laughs> okay. That's that's one I think you you might enjoy. Such a beautiful movie. It's a beautiful Love movie. It. There's some questionable parts. If you're but... volunteering to do a, a watch party with me, then I'll watch literally anything. Awesome. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to make well, a list. Not, well, but not The Lodge. Not The Lodge, no. We wouldn't do that to you. Thank you. We wouldn't do that to you. I don't know. I mean... Nick did decide I went to jail for armed robbery, so. <laughs> I did appreciate that Jordan said it wouldn't have been a gun because I do not believe in violence, so. That's beautiful. It's true. Jordan did come to my defense after all. She used no, her like, arms. The idea that I would have a weapon is ridiculous. Do you have any idea the trouble I go to to rescue worms on the sidewalk, Nick? <laughs> worms? Yes, you know how like, after, after it rains, they all end up above ground and sometimes around the sidewalk. Yeah. I get very worried about them because people are always in a hurry and they don't pay attention to what they're doing. So I'm always like relocating worms. <laughs> and like stuff like that. I'll go through great trouble not to hurt an ant. You need to write a book like, and call it Relocating Worms, no matter what it's about. <laughs> I like the title <laughs> Relocating Worms. So, no. I would not have weapons, Nick. <laughs> Well, good to know. I'm good. I'm glad. Um, Just my greatest weapon is my shoes for when I kick Mitch McConnell in the shins. <laughs> Do y'all remember uh, The Invisibles, that movie that we were talking about? Yes. Yes. Do, uh, I was, I'm going to tell you what it's about. Is it scary? No, actually. Uh, okay. It's supposed to be like a fantasy movie. It's actually, it sounds awesome. <laughs> a couple facing the end of a marriage when the husband starts to disappear as he fades from existence he discovers a new world of people who have disappeared just like him so wait wait was, is this the guillermo del toro movie no this is the invisible starring lucy Liu and tim blake nelson this is the andrew curie film okay i a i love that b i'm confused tell me again how guillermo del toro fit into all of this because we i was talking about tim blake nelson movies that tim blake nelson had been he's in, going to be in the and next, tim okay. blake nelson's going to be in got nightmare it. alley got it got it back on track that does sound awesome that sounds really yeah cool, <laughs> i was like really excited about that so uh if if anything you know maybe i might not have like learned as much from my research but i definitely learned several new movies that I want to watch, you know, added several things to my watch list. Expanded your watch list. Absolutely. I'm glad to hear that when you said that it's still in production, I'm glad to hear that he still has work. I, I saw the numbers in my research and I was like, Ooh, that's, uh, this made less than a million dollars. That's really not the best. Um, but it's, it's good that he's still working. That's awesome. It is. It is. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, Sometimes I, you know, it's, it's baffling to me how certain people continue to get work, not because they're untalented, just because, you know, money talks. And if your movie didn't make money, I'm surprised sometimes. But, you know, if if you have one thing that hits, a lot of people will give you a lot of chances to continue to chase that again. But this guy hasn't, I don't know. Well, (laughs) We'll just have to see. I'm sure it'll be good, though. I have faith in all of these movies that they're at least enjoyable because I, I enjoyed Fido. Like, I think this guy's a competent director. Okay, so I can move into, like, another point. Do you guys have more stuff we can bounce back and forth between or? Uh, 
uh, nothing comes to mind. I did, I feel like, like I said, a lot of the research I started initially was, like, pretty academic in nature. Uh, For example, I read an essay called Infection, Media, and Capitalism from Early Modern Plagues to Postmodern Zombies. And the first sentence of the abstract is, this essay examines the shift in fictional representations of plague and viral infection in relation to technological, medical, and economic developments. It was fascinating. It's not helpful for this uh, purpose. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, it is 23 pages long. Uh, I thought it was great. Um, it did not inform my analysis of this movie. So that's, that's a lot of the stuff I have left. Uh, so are you laughing at me because that sounds boring? No, I just think you said like, that sounds fascinating. Does not. (laughs) It was fascinating. It did not help me though. Did you read it? Yes. All 23 pages. Yeah. Hell yeah. You are a badass. (laughs) Thank you. I majored in philosophy. Have you ever read Kojeb's Interpretations of Hegel? Oh, yeah, all the time. It's right over here. <laughs> it's German, translated into French, translated into English. <laughs> it is cumbersome. Oh, no. Uh, 23 pages of just regular English is nothing. Unless it's written by Ayn Rand, because that shit is incomprehensible. <laughs> that woman does not make any sense. She cannot write. Good old Ayn Rand. She also cannot think, apparently. <laughs> Good old. Who the fuck no. is Ayn Rand? She wrote... my ideological arch nemesis. <laughs> Do you know that book? The look. That has... I wish you guys could see the look she just <laughs> gave me. <laughs> She's like a philosophical supervillain. You've never heard of Ayn Rand? Do you know the book that has the the guy that is holding Atlas Shrugged? That one where he's holding the globe. Yeah, yeah. She wrote that one. I've not read it, but I, I do know. Don't bother. I tried. It's nonsense. <laughs> Don't. I tried because I was like, people should read stuff written by people they disagree with. Um, okay, but like incomprehensible, <laughs> indecipherable. Um, to get a good idea, here's a funny way to get a good idea of Ayn Rand. Uh, several years ago, The New Yorker did a piece in there. I think it's The Shouts and Murmurs, which is like, it's the funny thing they do every week. It's, it's satire. But it's um, Ayn Rand reviews children's movies and so someone writing as if they're Ayn Rand revu- reviewing kids movies and it is hilarious these are like great. at least once a year at least I revisit it it cracks me up every time it's can you, very very can you give funny. like two or three examples I love these okay it's been a little while there's one oh she reviews the Muppets take Manhattan and I don't remember how she she get rates it on stars she being whoever's pretending to be Ayn Rand uh, but they give it a low rating, and then she was like, I was very disappointed in this film. The Muppets did not take Manhattan. They merely visited it. <laughs> <laughs> was there one about, like, 101 Dalmatians or something, too? That one, I think, stuck out to me. I don't remember exactly, but she basically makes um, some comment about, like, it was a very good use. Something about that it's, like, useful to use all those puppies to make a coat, right? That it's very utilitarian. Um, uh <laughs> Well, not utilitarian, but that it is like useful and practical, so yeah. productive. Um, That's great. There's there's a section of the one about the about Willy Wonka uh, and the Chocolate Factory is she gets mad about the grandparents who are in bed, and she goes, "If Grandpa Joe can dance, Grandpa Joe can work." <laughs> and then, but and then she also praised the fact that it, it was a movie about young children being given factories. She was like, "We should have more films about industrious young people being given factories." <laughs> 
They're really fantastic. If you can find that, it's article, been some time since I. I feel like I'm gonna look it up right now. It's send, truly one of the best things I've ever read. Send the link, and we'll include it in the notes because it it is. I, I feel like you've brought that up at least once every time we visit each other, and I never get tired of it. It's fantastic. I think about it every few months. <laughs> it's whatever I need. A pick me up. Oh, here's the 101 Dalmatians one. A wealthy woman attempts to do her impoverished school friend Anita a favor by purchasing some of her many dogs and putting them to sensible use. Her generosity is repulsed at every turn, and Anita foolishly and irresponsibly begins requiring even more animals, none of which are used to make a practical winter coat. (laughs) Altruism is pointless. So are dogs. A cat is a far more sensible pet. A cat is objectively valuable. No stars. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my, oh God. my God. It's so good. It's so good. I feel like... Oh, they just went for Frozen. An exceptional woman foolishly allows her mooching family members to keep her from ruling a kingdom of ice in perfect solitude. She is forced to use her unique powers to provide free entertainment for peasants without compensation i liked the snowman when he sang one star <laughs> it's a masterpiece so so that's 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 a a master class on ayn rand for you nick <laughs> that is amazing do you have more stuff nick yes i do please enlighten us take it away okay you know how I was talking to you guys about that website stackers list of the 60 greatest zombie movies of all time? This movie actually ranked uh, 39 on that list. So that was pretty good out of the 7,900 films that they considered. So that's, that's, that's pretty amazing, actually. Uh, number one on that list was George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead from 1968. And I completely understand that. It's a very good movie. But interestingly enough, though, I was thinking about this. Willard, which is the name of the town in Fido, is a reference to the, the town that's featured heavily in uh, Night of the Living Dead. Wow. Yeah, they they have the same town name. Uh, and I don't know, I can't remember like if they specifically said this movie takes place in Pennsylvania, uh, or if Fido does, but I know that Night of the Living Dead does. It's also going back to a conversation we had in Take Two about those sort of almost surreal scenes where they're in front of this big, they're silhouetted in front of that big moon. Um, Oh yeah. I wasn't about to go ahead and watch all of the night of the living deads, but I, even just the posters were enough for those movies to know that that was a direct reference to those movies. Oh yeah. So like visually Ah. this movie harkens back to a lot of George A. Romero movies. Yeah. Um, Thank you for settling that mystery for me. It was going to bug me. Yeah, (laughs) Totally. Thank you. Now I know. There's some like things at the end of the credits that are kind of funny. There's a little line that sa- a line of text that says any similarity to actual persons living dead or undead is purely unintentional. <laughs> 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 then I think it's like after like a piracy warning or something like that. It says violators will be subject to criminal prosecution by the RCMP, FBI, Interpol, Zomcon, and other enforcement agencies. And will be sent to the wild zone. <laughs> then it also it also says no zombies were hurt in the making of this motion picture. Love that. I love that. That's cute. <laughs> That's all made me very happy. I like it when they do stuff like that. Definitely. Like, cause 
I don't know. I don't know who waits to the end of movies and reads all the credits, but I try to. I mean, you did, apparently. You know, as somebody who, like, has worked on movies and stuff like that, I try to, like, give everybody their attention. But honestly, it's just because Marvel taught me that you need to wait just in case there's an end credit sequence. (laughs) I do feel like that's becoming increasingly a thing, too. I feel like other movies are are deploying that in the last few moments. Oh, yeah. They'll do something fun. And I think I think it's kind of important, not that, again, like you said, not that you have to read every single name, but something I learned in college being friends with a lot of film students that like sit through the end of the credits. Like, I think I think it's a it's yeah, it's a respectful way to to, you know, at least give attention to all of the amazing talent that went into making a masterpiece so or if you hated something you'd be like oh wow john doe did a shit job <laughs> like i'm gonna go find him and uh bully him i suppose that i mean too. if you're an asshole you <laughs> i was worried i wouldn't have anything to say because my paper didn't end up being i felt that informative because it was really restricted to like interpreting the movie from like the lens of like the way descartes lays out like having a self. Um, and unless you've read Descartes, I just feel like that's not interesting. I also remember when I feeling like when I wrote the paper that like it really constrained what I was able to like say about the movie. I feel like a lot of the stuff that's cool about the movie is like not about that. Uh, so I was worried that that was like my, my main co- contribution. And actually it's like, it's five pages of Descartes. Uh, and then some connections to the movie at the end. So I, s- I didn't. I still think didn't think that a Descartes lecture was the <laughs> move here. So see, but I I would have graciously accepted that as well. But I think what was said here today was incredible and phenomenal, uh, regardless of whether it was related to the movie or not. Um, and as well, I'll just record a voice memo of myself reading the essay and send it to you. I, perfect and i i will gladly listen like you and you know i'd put that shit in too that's a joke like um read that 23 page thing and i'll put that in there too (laughs) okay yeah this was spectacular thank you so much for being on uh two ginormous episodes of this uh, podcast with us samantha you are a joy and a treat just like always and um, I can't wait to do this again. Well, thank you for having me. And Nick, thank you for editing. I <laughs> do feel bad about creating all that work for you. I'm not editing you any did, of this. You instigated it. I'm so. uploading this tonight. I'm not editing nothing. That's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> Jordan wouldn't do that to me. No. So No. I would not. I would not. I See, I'm not worried. I'm not amused, but I'm not worried. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. Hey, cool people. Samantha here. At least I assume you're cool since you're also fans of my dear friends, Jordan and Nick. Thanks for listening to this lengthy season finale episode of Take 3, a movie podcast. If you enjoyed listening to it even half as much as we enjoyed recording it, I hope you'll take a moment to write nice things about Nick and Jordan in an Apple podcast review. I don't have anything to promote, so instead I want to encourage folks to consider scheduling an appointment to donate blood. There's been an ongoing and severe shortage nationwide. A simple blood donation only takes about 10 minutes, 
and it will help save a life. You can find donation sites in your area, as well as info about eligibility and the donation process at redcrossblood.org.